You're listening to the Elmira Radio Hour, a podcast that opens the door to culture and news you definitely missed this week. We're, we're your, your hosts, hosts, Nina Bhattacharya and Sheila Lal. This week, we're talking to Emma Olson Sharkey, co-founder of The Franchise Project. Emma and I were first put in touch by Stephanie Command, an old high school classmate, college classmate, and also one of the contributors to The Franchise Project. The Franchise Project is dedicated to informing the public about voting rights and spurring people to take action in their local communities. So, of course, we wanted to learn a little bit more about how they started and what they're all about. Um, it was really nice when Stephanie introduced us to the work that you've been starting with the Franchise Project, mostly because in addition to being really passionate about the topic itself, um, Sheila has been really involved over the past few years uh, at Progress Missouri and has done a lot of work uh, at the state level in Missouri on uh, voting access. So that was a, just a really nice connection mm-hmm. to be made. So yeah. we're super excited to have you talk with us today and just learn more about yeah. you and also the project itself. Of course. And, and Stephanie, I mean, I met Stephanie when she came to work as a fellow in Wisconsin on the Democratic Coordinated Campaign there. Um, and she was just incredible. I mean, you guys already know this, but she is just one of the most thoughtful, uh, friendliest people I've ever met. And it feels so lucky to have her in my life now. Um, so I'm curious, how did you get involved in voting rights? Yeah, so I actually started working on campaigns in 2008, essentially and worked uh, as an organizer and then kind of made my way uh, up the chain of campaign work. Um, So I was a field director in 2010. And really, I just always saw, I I saw what was happening um, during the campaigns. And then also, as things got closer to the election itself, seeing how people couldn't register to vote and seeing how people were having issues and really knew that there was something deeper than just the organizing work that I was doing. Mm -hmm. And to be able to make a change in our laws themselves, rather than focus on the organizing aspects of the things was really important to me. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to go to law school to get more involved in voting rights work. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Can you walk through some of the challenges that you were uh, witnessing during your organizing work? A lot of people um, may not be so familiar with some of the challenges folks face at the polls. Yeah, in 2008, I was part of the coordinated campaign in Minnesota and really saw how people had trouble uh, actually figuring out what they needed to register to vote. Uh, Thankfully, we have same-day registration in Minnesota, so people can actually uh, register on Election Day. But just seeing how people were confused about the restrictions. And then also the absentee process and how difficult it was in having various uh, witnesses and Uh, Just seeing how people were distracted by uh, some of the more specific requests or requirements that they had to 
fulfilled. And Minnesota is one of the better states compared to Michigan, Missouri, Texas, Michigan, <laughs> Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. I mean, it doesn't require a photo ID and it doesn't require a lot of other, a lot of other restrictions um, that really stop people from being able to cast their ballots. So the fact that there were issues in Minnesota where the states are, or the laws are supposed to be pretty good, really showed that I, you know, I knew that I wanted to get, learn more about it. I also ended up uh, in 2008 working on the Al Franken recount mm-hmm. and seeing uh, how interesting that process was and seeing how uh, Minnesota requires that you have uh, paper ballots. And so we were able to actually recount each specific ballot by paper mm-hmm. rather than the whole issues that they had in, in 2000 with the Gore uh, Bush recount and seeing the comparisons between the two mm-hmm. and how simple the process was uh, in Minnesota compared to what happened in Florida, you know, really made me interested in being com- becoming more engaged in that world and learning more about what I could do to make elections more accessible. It's really fascinating that you um, mentioned the same day registration. And that's why I mentioned yeah. Michigan as one of, uh, you know, it's funny how states can be next door to each other almost and still have radically different voting laws that restrict folks from accessing the polls. I, I was in Flint during 08, working out of the coordinated office um, in Genesee County. And it was so interesting to hear about folks who had been previously incarcerated. Um, yeah. A lot of questions about whether they could register to vote or participate in election that was historic for many folks in the African-American community in Flint. Um, And also for students, I remember being on campus and in Michigan, you have to re-register to vote every time you move. So for for a lot of college students, if they're moving dorms and having to re-register to vote, there's a huge issue. And in 2010, for us, in fact, like it was a huge, huge blow, (laughs) those elections. And part of it was because they, the University of Michigan had decided to move polling places away from dorms um, within the yeah. university. So students would have to walk at least 15, 20 minutes to their closest polling location rather than going downstairs and um, voting in their own dorms. So just what you've mentioned only like, it's like bringing back those memories as well. And then I worked yeah. on the Amendment 6 campaign last year in Missouri. Um, so the... Missouri's constitution for the longest time was stronger than the U.S. constitution when it came to voting rights. And in 2006, the General Assembly passed through photo voter ID. It was struck down as unconstitutional. And so uh, since then, they tried to amend the constitution and finally were able to uh, reach a compromise with Senate Democrats and push through a Senate joint resolution to add it to the ballot in 2016. And the fair ballot language for uh, to amend our constitution to make photo voter ID constitutional was so skewed that it passed two to one, like the language was so skewed. I would canvas for other candidates locally and also tie in Amendment 6 to be like, hey, vote no on this. And right. and it was a vote no campaign, which makes it even more difficult. Um, and so the language, the enabling statute to the amendment is so vague. They're like, if it's fully funded, it'll go into effect. Fully funded never had a number on it. And so the Secretary of State's office, which is run by a Republican now, and the General Assembly, which is a supermajority Republican body, argued that like 200 or 250,000 is now considered fully funded. And so we have part of the compromise between Senate Democrats and Senate Republicans last year was allowing for an affidavit. So you didn't have to show the, the restrictive forms of ID. 
But then it's like, what's the point in having this? Yeah, and actually speaking to yeah. that, the the affidavit piece is a good alternative if it has to happen. Yeah. But at the same point, you're still confusing voters. And yep. so by saying, oh, bring your photo ID, but oh, if you don't have it, bring an affidavit, um, is just, uh, it, it confuses voters. And ultimately, in doing so, you know, research, so, research shows less people turn out. That's just what yeah. happens. So we uh, had the first round of elections after Amendment 6 passed, this um, past municipal. And generally, municipals in mid-Missouri bring out about 16 to maybe 19 percent. Maybe, if you're lucky, 11 percent. Yep. Yeah. And they're like, people don't care. And I'm like, no, people do. People just don't know what the voting rules are. And we have, when you have to have a flowchart to explain how to vote, like, no one's going to try to come out and exercise that right. Right. It's, it's this idea that, you know, the Republicans and people who implement these laws know what they're doing when yeah. they when they pass them. Um, and so the fact that this has happened, you know, across the country and, and it's been a strategy across the country is just really disheartening. And actually, speaking to that, so in 2016, I was in Wisconsin doing voter protection work for the Hillary campaign and all in the Democrats. And when I was doing that, I, you know, had this comparison to when I had previously worked in Minnesota. And in Wisconsin, they had passed a photo ID law, they had restricted early voting, they had complicated the procedures and what is required for photo ID. They had done a, a lot of things that made voting more restrictive. And ultimately, uh, there had been lit great litigation around them. This had continually made things complicated because the photo ID law wasn't actually in place. They passed it in 2010, but it wasn't actually put into place until 2016. And so the fact that, you know, that had been out there, but in being litigated constantly yeah. um, and unsure about, you know, whether there was going to be a stay by a judge about the photo ID law or whether it was going to be in place uh, was just, it's confusing to voters. And it's something that, you know, photo IDs are not necessary to vote. They should not be necessary. And arguably, they're unconstitutional in many ways that they're implemented. It's just, it's too bad that people have taken that tack to uh, move forward with restricting voting, essentially. So what is the Franchise pro uh, Project actually doing to combat this? Because this seems to be a state legislative issue and um, can sometimes seem a little bit out of our control because it's about who's cutting what deals behind closed doors. And just to add to yeah. that, walk us through like how you met your co-founder. It was during yeah. 2016, right? Yeah, her name is Sarah Etsy, and we actually met in 2016 on the uh, Hillary Clinton campaign. We were, I was working in Wisconsin as the voter protection director, and she was essentially my point of contact in the headquarters in Brooklyn. We got to know each other really quickly and became fast friends, and once the election happened in, uh, in November, and... <laughs> And we don't need to get into that, but once that happened, I know Sarah and I were, were really interested in seeing what we could do to make a difference. And then watching how many people came out for the Women's March, uh, we knew that people were interested in making our country better. One of the things that we saw, going back to the election for a second, one of the things that we saw is that people are really interested in voting rights, and mm -hmm. they care about voting rights, but they don't really know how to get involved to make mm -hmm. their elections more accessible. Ultimately, when people think about voting rights, they think federal legislation, they think the Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
we know as people who have practiced this work for a long time that a lot of the election laws are made at the state level and at the local level. And a lot of the decisions are made at the state and the local level. Mm -hmm. And so there was this disconnect between, you know, I want to be a voting rights activist, but what does that actually tangibly mean? And so the part that we are doing with the franchise project, what our goal is, is to actually provide accessible information to people about voting rights and then provide easy ways for them to engage in ways that actually make a difference in their elections. So to give you an example, in Wisconsin, the local municipal clerks control how many uh, early voting locations there are in your municipality. So mm -hmm. the town clerk decides, okay, we're gonna have the mayor's office area be the place where people are gonna actually go early voting. And they decide the hours too, and whether there are weekend hours. All of those decisions are made in that town for that town. And so by having even just one call saying, hey, you know what? I really think that we should have two early voting locations. And I really think that we should have uh, Saturday hours because then it's more accessible. It actually makes a huge difference. And we saw that in the election as we push people to uh, engage in that way. But at the same point, like people don't know that. And so the fact that we can provide information that says, here's what you can do, here's why it matters, and then really concrete actions for people to make a difference is, is really important. And we've seen that since our launch in July, we've seen that people have taken action and really made a difference and hopefully are making a difference in their elections. Frustrates me that like 
if my friend who is a lawyer and election specialist was a county clerk, this could have been handled so much better and more differently, but the political expediency around voting rights and voting access is very disheartening. And so you say that they're reaching out to smaller counties and municipalities about voting access. Like, has there been any pushback? Like, what does that actually look like? How partisan does it get when it comes to voting access? Because we know by design it is partisan, but it shouldn't be. Yeah. And and that's, you know, that's a great question. I We've seen that a lot of election administrators, uh, local and state, like to see themselves as nonpartisan because of the role that they play in, in administering elections. And, you know, ultimately, I would say that 95% of the people who administer elections are just trying to do the best job they can to make sure that people get to vote. And they want to implement the laws that they see uh, that are that are in on the books in a fair way. And by doing that, they, you know, they want to administer the elections the, you know, the way that they have been, but also doing it in a way that they see as the, the right way. Um, and, and so people, ultimately, most of them are just doing their best. You know, I think that there are some partisan individuals who attempt to make the elections more restrictive uh, based on their preferences. But ultimately, uh, the, the fact that people are out there and willing to take the time to do this work is really important. When you say there's some folks who want to make it partisan, obviously, Missouri, one of Missouri's eight neighbors is Kansas. Yeah. Um, and I saw on the website that you had a petition uh, to push back against this administration's voting fraud commission or whatever it's called. And that is partially led by Chris Kobach, who will be running for Kansas governor. So right. can you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So Chris Kobach is somebody who really fits within that 5% of people who are, you know, not just in an estimate. I think most yeah. people are really out there doing the best they can. But Chris Kobach is, has a history of disenfranchising people. Uh, he administers Interstate Crosscheck, which is a program that unfairly purges voters from the rolls and has a history of doing so. Uh, and and 29 states are a part of that project. And so that's something that we are fighting back. In addition to what you just mentioned, the Election uh, Integrity Commission, basically uh, Trump has called it a voter fraud commission. And ultimately, they are, so far, they have requested all voter registration data from all 50 states plus DC uh, without really explaining why they want to use it. Um, ultimately, the data is probably going to be used as kind of a comparison to see if people are voting in more than one space committing voter fraud. But again, voter fraud is not a thing. It doesn't happen. And it's, you know, there are rare instances, but if if it does happen, it's mostly mistake. I mean, people do not go around voting multiple times. What happens is people think that they should be voting in one precinct and they vote in the other, and that's the extent of it. Um, and so the fact that Chris Kobach is doing this and wasting federal resources and scaring people and ultimately uh, making even Republican secretaries of state mad it's just a waste of everybody's time um, and money. And the fact that it continues to happen is, is really unfortunate. Uh, 27 mm -hmm. states had 
refused to comply in some way. At last count, 18 states had refused to comply completely. And basically all of the states have said that they have not, or they're not going to comply, um, but only comply with the public information that they can, they can uh, put out there. So Chris Kovac in this request had asked for social security information, uh, how people had voted in the past years, uh, their, all kinds of things um, that really are not public information and the states had refused to, to comply. Kind of at a very philosophical level, it just makes me think about how our country is operating in a way that demonizes the people that it's supposed to represent. It's like we're assuming the worst of our own citizens. I'm like, what a way to operate in the world with such kind of like doubt and suspicion towards folks who are trying to participate in democracy. I think it's a very glass half empty kind of um, approach, in my opinion. I just really hope that uh, demonization can shift a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about the scorecard itself. A lot of thought went into the scorecard's development. Just even perusing the website, you get a sense of the couple of metrics that went into it. But what was the methodology you and your team came up with to um, ranking and scoring states? Uh, it would be great to have you comment on the fact that this apparently was a gap that needed to be filled. Like, it's really surprising to me that no one has done this before. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. No, and that's that's a, a really good point that you make. So uh, first, I'll answer your second question first. This was something that we cared a lot about, the fact that there wasn't really a comprehensive guide to what makes elections accessible and how score how states score. And so the fact that the various voting rights organizations hadn't done something like this, we knew was a gap and we wanted to make sure that we, as, as a franchise project, undertook that responsibility. And so speaking to your second or your first question, the methodology, we really focused on what makes elections more accessible. What does the ideal state look like? What are the qualities that would make uh, voting most accessible? From mail-in ballots to uh, no excuse absentee voting to expanded early voting locations and hours to the voter list maintenance process, all of the aspects that really look at how accessible voting is in your state. And so we essentially, as a team of about 15 researchers, work to figure out what are the voting uh, laws look like across the country and what actually seems to impact uh, voting accessibility. As individuals who have been a part of the voting rights movement and making elections more accessible, we, we knew what some of those aspects were, uh, but we also did a lot of research and talked to experts about what actually impacted voting access and ultimately came up with the 30 metrics that are now included in the card. So what can people use the scorecard for? 
Yeah, what we're hoping people do and what we have seen uh, since our launch is that people actually use the scorecard to look at the state laws in their state and then actually take action around those specific laws. And so we have guides uh, and are going to continue to build out guides around specific issues um, to help people actually take action around them. So for instance, we actually have a guide on how to request early voting, expanded hours and locations. And so if your state like Wisconsin or Minnesota or Pennsylvania actually allow for expanded early voting or could allow for expanded early voting, we actually walk you through why it's important and then provide an example script and uh, specific information about how to contact your local officials and then encourage you to do so. That's really awesome. Um, I'm a big fan of process and being able to disrupt the system in an immediate step. And this makes me very hopeful that folks in red states or purple states, formerly purple states, are able to really um, utilize this to their own benefit. In every state, even the state that scores the highest, so actually D.C. is the highest scoring state, there's there's something that you can do in every state to make your elections more accessible. And even if that's becoming a poll worker and and actually helping to make sure people vote and, you know, that the laws are enforced fairly, I mean, that would, that's, that's huge. You know, there's things that you can do across the country to make elections more accessible. And they're different in every state. I mean, they're more urgent in some states, for sure. Uh, But ultimately, uh, there are things that you can do locally that will have huge benefits uh, to people around, around in your community, and then also hopefully across the state. That's such a great way to frame it, too, Um, particularly the poll worker aspect. Sheila and I were talking about it a lot last November and thinking about linguistic access and access for folks who with certain disabilities is critical. And having people who look like you at the polls, even if the voting process is easy for you, giving everyone else that extra help, uh, whether it's speaking to them in Hindi or Bangla in our cases, and giving them the assistance they need is just so critical. So I, I, I like that framing that it, this is not something that's limited to just folks in the middle of the country, you know, right. it, it, voting restrictions occur in certain forms mm-hmm. across the entire United States. Um, and I yeah. think that's really important given the media coverage that has really um, in some ways overlooked or put the burden or onus on the Midwest and the middle of the United States in last November's results. And the fact is, that's, we're not the only ones at fault, you know? (laughs) So I appreciate that. I was just going to say, to add to that, there are actually requirements at the federal level for certain aspects of voting. So accessibility, like you were just saying, for individuals who have mobility disability or other kind of disability. Uh, And also language assistance. So having materials in other languages. And so there are federal requirements around them, around those issues, but a lot of times at the local level, they're not actually implemented. And so that's something that, you know, as a person who volunteers to be a poll worker, you can make sure that you're doing. And it's a very simple but reasonable thing that really makes a huge difference for lots of people. On your website, because it's about, like, franchising and, like, getting to, letting people know their, their rights to vote, are you doing anything around the formerly incarcerated and how each state has different laws and how you can maybe impact that? 
Yeah, so we actually, so that's part of uh, the scorecard, of course. There are three metrics around that. We also uh, recently posted, wrote about it in the blog that we have on the franchise project. And so specifically talking around Florida disenfranchisement, um, specifically Florida actually disenfranchises more people in the country than any other state. Uh, and so it's, it's a really big deal. And it's actually something that's going to be on the ballot coming up here in 2018 as well. Oh. Yep. Um, but yeah, for, I mean, felon disenfranchisement is a huge issue and something that a lot of individuals are working on and also something that we want to be a part of going forward uh, as we as we continue to expand our work. Very cool. Yeah, I didn't know until maybe a week before the election that in Missouri, if you serve your time and completed your parole and whatnot, like you're eligible to vote again. But nobody really talks about that. It's not documented or pushed out in messaging as frequently. And that's why I'm really curious how different states tackle uh, this issue. Like, I personally think that you should always have your right to vote and it shouldn't be taken away from you. Yeah. Exploitation of the 13th Amendment, blah, blah, blah. But um, I'm just curious. I'm glad that like the, fran the franchise project has this information for each state. Yeah, so there are two states that actually allow, even allow people to vote in, in prison. So that's great. But most states are somewhere in between where they'll allow people to vote after they've completed their parole or probation period. Um, and, and that's something that, you know, you're right. Everybody should be able to vote at all at all times, um, at all, at every point. If you're if you're eligible beyond just that, it's something that it doesn't make sense to disenfranchise people. And uh, the fact that some states actually don't even allow you to vote after you've completed your probation and parole, but you're actually disenfranchised for the rest of your life, is is terrible. And actually, Florida falls into that category. People who have been convicted of a felon um, are actually not allowed to vote ever again unless they have an individual pardon by the governor or by the legislature. Damn. Yeah. Well, can you tell people where they can find this information, how they can access you online or maybe analog? Yeah. <laughs> <have> that. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, the best way to learn more about the voting laws in your state is actually to go to the Franchise Project and take a look at our scorecard. Uh, there are 30 metrics that we measure, and um, you can take a look at how accessible your elections are. And then, uh, you know, we're on Facebook and Twitter, and uh, you can always feel free to email us at our contact information on the website, too. And so the Twitter handle is Franchise Proj. And then the website yep. is thefranchiseproject.com. And That's right. to end on a hopeful note, what has been giving you hope over the last few months? I, I feel like we need to talk about this as like people who are involved in activism and advocacy. Um, but what keeps you what keeps you going? That's a great question and something that I think about a lot, uh, especially as the news can be so negative right now. And you know, when Sarah and I began this project, we actually started by reaching out to our friends and asking them to be a part of it. And everyone we talked to was excited about the work and excited about being helpful in some way. And that was really heartening to see that people actually really wanted to take action around this issue. And since we launched, 
more recently in July, um, really seen that people care about voting rights. We've had people email us out of the blue and say, you know, can I be a part of this team? Can I help write for the blog? Or mm. we've seen people, you know, make contributions and actually take action and call their local county clerk. And we've seen all of these things that have really, you know, really proved the theory that this organization is needed and people are really excited about being part of this work. They just needed to figure out a little, they just needed a little bit more information to do so. So we're really excited about where we're going and how we've been able to engage people. And uh, yeah, really excited about making elections more accessible, eventually. So wonderful. Awesome. Thank you so much, Emma, for spending your morning with us and telling us a little yeah. bit more about what you've been up to. Of course, of course. And that's our episode. Thanks for tuning in. You can find us online at omiraradiohour.com. Sheila's on Twitter at Queen of Blah, and you can find me, Nina, at Only Nina. We'll catch you next time.